You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy Tuesday to you, wherever you are. I want to thank you for joining me for tonight's uh, teaching. I am looking forward to bringing this information to you as uh, kind of the the culmination of the last year and a half of research that I've been doing, and I am looking forward to bringing it to you tonight. I've given little snippets of it here and there in past broadcasts, but I'm going to bring it all together tonight to help you in your journey as you are looking for colleges for your son or your daughter, particularly Christian colleges, and give you some ways to vet colleges and help you find out what is going on there. We're going to be talking about five ways to vet your child's Christian college. And uh, this is going to be the culmination of a lot of the research that I have been doing over the last year and a half. And kind of how this whole thing got started for me was that back in 2020, I was happily living my little life in the pandemic. And um, my daughter came home from college. And I've mentioned before that uh, she was attending uh, Biola University. We are a proud, we have been a proud three-generation Biola family. Uh, My husband's parents went there. My husband and I met at Biola. We've saved since our kids were born to be able to send them to Biola. And so when our daughter started there, I believe in the fall of 2017, you know, it was just kind of a a dream come true for, for her to be able to do that. And when she came home during the pandemic of 2020, um, and you know, we lived through the pandemic and all the social unrest, I really started to notice like something's off, something's not quite right. And I, my daughter had grown up around apologetics her whole life. She knew and had met, you know, prominent apologists. So she knew that you know, like, hey, there's reasons for our faith. And that wasn't like some foreign concept to her. Um, I had taught a a little apologetics club at our church for the high school students. So she was just swimming in those waters all the time. But um, what happened was I started wondering, like, I wonder, like, what are they really teaching her there? Like, her faith doesn't seem, you know, quite as strong as I would expect and started just kind of noticing some things that were off. And um, so I started contacting people that that I still knew at Biola and um, everything I'm going to share tonight in this presentation is public information. I'm not going to disclose um interviews that I have done behind the scenes, but I I will say that in the beginning, I I talked to people that I knew that were still there, people who were on staff, people who were on faculty, and I was just kind of trying to figure out, like, what is going on, you know, so um, I went down this rabbit hole, and hopefully, Bob, there you go, uh, and started doing one-on-one interviews uh, with a lot of different people, And then I expanded not just talking to people at Biola, but at other Christian universities, because I was trying to understand the big picture. So I went down this rabbit hole of doing one-on-one interviews with a lot of different people, deans, uh, faculty, former faculty, staff, former staff, parents, students, former parents, former students, Um, just a wide variety of people. And I've probably done, I don't know, 25 to 30 would be a conservative number uh, interviews. And again, these were not all at Biola. They also branched out into other Christian universities. But that was a big part of my data set that I started investigating um, 
Because up until that point, I really thought the Christian universities were pretty much the same as when my husband and I went to them. Um, And so I started also watching chapels. I've watched 50 would be a conservative number. I almost put a hundred, but I'm like, no, I want to be like as conservative as I can in all these numbers. So I put it in 50 in the slide. So I I watched a ton of chapels, Biola chapels, but also chapels at other Christian colleges. Again, I was trying to get a feel for more broadly what was happening in Christian higher ed. Um, Then I started reading faculty curricula vitae, which is if you don't know that word, it's a CV, it's, it's an academic resume, and it's what people put together who work in academia with all of their papers that they've written, their published articles, their books, their achievements, accomplishments. So I started reading CVs from various faculty people. Um, I even started reading dissertations from uh, various faculty people. And then I also started getting data from informants. When I started talking about things publicly, then people started contacting me and they started giving me more information or saying, oh, you should talk to this person at this school or this person at this school. So I had informants at different schools, um, staff and students. So all of this data is what I've been gathering for the last year and a half or so. And definitely some patterns started to emerge. Like it it wasn't just Biola that had these issues. I started noticing patterns across the spectrum in Christian higher ed. And honestly, there were challenges in doing this research. In the beginning, especially, there was the challenges of, of my own emotions, like I didn't want to believe it. I had, and my husband had had such a positive experience in Christian higher ed as students. We wanted that for our kids. We had saved for it. We had stayed out of debt so that we could save as much as possible. Um, and I just didn't want to believe it. I did not want to believe what I saw. And um, many of these schools uh, have a solid history and, um, when I would look at that, that, that was another kind of emotional barrier for me because I didn't want to believe it. Many of these Christian colleges were founded during the Bible college movement 100, 120-ish years ago. And these Bible colleges that had now evolved into full-fledged Christian universities, the whole reason they were founded was to Um, be a stand against the rise of modernism coming into so many institutions, you know, 125 years ago. So schools like Wheaton and Moody and Biola and Multnomah and all of these schools, they they were founded as part of this, this great preservation movement of fundamentalism 125 years ago. And so it was hard for me to even wrap my mind around the possibility that these schools that were founded specifically to preserve the faith, it seemed like we're drifting into some places that I was like, I'm not sure that this is compatible with historic Christianity. Another challenge or barrier in my research is the many public statements that these schools would use. They had solid statements of faith, many of them. Um, their presidents were were coming out with statements um, during the time of the, all the social unrest in 2020 and, and looking at the donor messaging and people were sending me donor letters and, and what was happening there. And, and so as I was gathering all of this data, there, was, there were definite emotional blockages for me. Like I did not want to believe where the data was leading. I was resistant to it for for a very long time. But in the end, I'm going to give you my conclusion first, and then I'm going to walk us through some of the data that I've gathered. And again, I'm not going to be disclosing private conversations tonight. I'm going to be making public comments on things that are public. So that's where the data set for this stream is coming from. But 
the conclusion that I came to and that I think it will save you a lot of time as you are vetting a Christian college, have this assumption in mind. And I call this your operational assumption. The, the school that you're looking at no matter how conservative it has been historically, no matter how faithful its doctrinal statement is, the operational assumption you have to have when you come to look at the school is that this school already employs staff who have implemented policies and procedures based on the critical social theories. And this usually flies under the banner of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Your job as the parent is simply to try to figure out how widespread it is. You should have an operational assumption from the beginning that this school has employed people right now that hold to some aspects of the critical social theories. Now, the schools are on a spectrum, and we're going to look at that tonight, and that's how you have to think of this. This is not a black or white issue. This is not an issue of, um, you know, yes or no. Like, people often ask me, uh, this is the number one question I'm getting right now while we're on the road a lot, is Christian parents asking me, what schools haven't been penetrated by the critical social theories? That's not the right question to ask. So you have to... I know it's hard. It's hard to imagine, but you've, you've got to ask a different question. What the question you have to ask is, what are the schools that have been the least compromised? This is, this is a spectrum issue, okay? So that's not to say that there might be a handful out there that where the critical social theories, like there's nobody on staff that holds to these views. Those schools hypothetically are probably out there, but you will save a lot of time if you have this operational assumption in your mind until you have clear evidence to the contrary. And we're gonna talk about what clear evidence actually is, okay? So that is going to be your operational assumption. So number one, the first way to vet the depth to which a school has been penetrated by the critical social theories is to carefully read the school's statement of faith. This is a great place to start, okay? So questions to ask as you're reading it is how robust is it? Is it 10 lines? Is it 10 paragraphs? Um, how robust is this statement of faith? Another thing to kind of look for in this day and age is does it define traditional marriage? Does it talk about humans being a man and a woman? Um, this, this could be uh, some potential data that could be quite revelatory. Does the doctrinal statement affirm inerrancy or only inspiration? And I think I'm going to very soon have to do a deep dive on inerrancy because inerrancy is a doctrine that is under attack right now again here we are you know 50 years later and we're circling back around to the the same issue but look for uh what the school is saying about inerrancy so i'm going to give a couple of examples here and again i'm only commenting i'm making public comment on public statements okay so um, I don't need to apply Matthew 18 here. I'm not in a personal offense with anybody. This is a public institution making public statements. Okay, so Matthew 18 doesn't apply. Please don't email me and ask me if I've contacted each school directly. Um, this is like doing a book review. When you do a book review, you don't comment, you don't contact the author every single time you want to make a comment about something. Okay, all right. So here's our first example. This is from Dallas Baptist University, DBU. They're in the great state of Texas. And uh, this was a school that my husband and I looked into uh, for our second daughter. And so first step, right out of the gate, looking at the mission statement. And this was the closest thing that I could find on their public website for a statement of faith. It's a very brief statement. When we talk to the admissions people, 
I asked them, is there a more detailed statement that's available? They said, no, it's what's on our website. So I'm going with that. Could be a misinformed admissions person. Um, if anyone from DBU wants to contact me with the, um, the actual statement of faith, that's cool. I would love to have it. But this is what I found, and I did inquire of the admissions person. Nothing else came forward. So the mission of Dallas Baptist University is to provide Christ-centered quality higher education in the arts, sciences, and professional studies to both undergraduate and graduate levels to traditional age and adult students in order to produce servant leaders who have the ability to integrate faith and learning through their respective callings. Then you can see right under it is a commentary on this mission statement. And I've read that commentary carefully a, a couple of times, and it's not a statement of faith. It is a commentary. It is an editorial expanding line by line um, thoughts about what is behind this mission statement. So as far as I can tell, this is the closest thing that Dallas Baptist University has to a statement of faith. Um, when I read the commentary, there wasn't a ton of doctrine. It was mostly um, editorial on uh, their, their kind of their philosophy of education, that sort of thing. You can go look at it for yourself and, and read it. It's a multi-page document. Um, let's, look, let's move on and look at a couple other examples. These are a couple of local examples to me in Southern California. Um, the Statement of Faith from Azusa Pacific and from Biola University. And um, Azusa Pacific's, I believe this is the whole statement. I could be wrong about that. It's been a little while since I put these slides together. There could be a little bit more that got cut off for the sake of the slide. Biola's Statement of Faith is quite long. It's several scrolls um, for uh, looking at it. It's quite, it's quite robust. So both of these, though, are pretty good. And the Statement of Faith from Azusa Pacific um, is still, you know, like it's solid, it's good, it's in the Wesleyan tradition. Um, and that's what Azusa Pacific comes out of is the Wesleyan tradition. Viola's statement is quite robust. Um, and I know that they really, um, at least when I was teaching at Biola, you had to do like a line by line um, defense for each line in the statement of faith and provide Bible verses uh, on your application. So your application turned out to be quite long. And so um, it, it is a quite a robust statement. And I, that's something that I appreciate very much about uh, what Biola is doing there. So here are some questions to ask when you go to a Christian college and you want to dig a little bit deeper. Here are some questions to ask. Do staff and faculty need to have a Christian testimony? My husband and I were surprised at some of the Christian colleges that we called that not all of them require faculty to have a Christian testimony. Do students need to have a Christian testimony to come here? Also, we were a little bit shocked that some of them don't require this. So you'll, you'll need to ask, are students required to attend chapels? If so, how often? Now, Biola, for example, has a very rigorous chapel requirement. And, and in fact, if you don't meet the chapel requirement, uh, there are consequences. Now, when my husband and I went to Biola, there was a requirement there weren't so many consequences, but they, um, they have definitely ramped that up. But at the schools, many of the schools that we called, they had, uh, the chapels were optional. And so that's something to look into that might give you possibly, possibly not, uh, but an insight into uh, the student life and the values of the students that choose to attend that school. What kind of behavioral or honor code are students expected to adhere, adhere to? How can I read that? And what consequences are involved uh, if they break that honor code? That produced some interesting conversations uh, at some of the schools that my husband and I interviewed. How many Bible classes are students required to take? Uh, what do they study in these classes? Again, Biola does a great job. They've historically had like a, 
all students get a minor in Bible. It's quite rigorous, it's 30 units. Other schools that my husband and I called, like they only required one or two Bible classes. And they weren't even really Bible classes. They were more like religion classes or um, a worldview class or something. So ask, those are some questions that you will want to ask as you are investigating where is the school on the spectrum of its beliefs and adherence to the historic Christian faith and how, how will they be instructing your kids along those lines? Okay, number two, the second thing you will want to do to vet your child's potential Christian college is to investigate the level of the school's commitment to diversity. Uh, this is a very important issue because there's a sense in which I think diversity, a conversation about diversity can be useful and helpful. Uh, we did a whole podcast about that last fall, so I'm not going to re-rehearse that here. But you're, you will want to inquire about what they understand about diversity. How are they defining that? Um, this will provide some data about the school's level of financial and structural investment into diversity. For example, do they have a diversity office? Do they have full-time paid staff that um, do nothing but do things surrounding diversity? Do, does the school have a, like a five-year strategic plan for diversity? If they do, ask them, how can I read it? They will probably not give you the strategic plan. They will provide you with a public summary of the strategic plan, but they will not probably disclose to you all of the policies and consequences that will be implemented as a result of the strategic plan. But you can ask. Um, and also ask for any position statements that the school might have. Um, maybe ask them if they have any position statements on social justice or racial reconciliation. And uh, when you, if you ask the admissions counselor, which in our experience at the schools that my husband and I interviewed, most of those admissions counselors kind of sounded like they were about 25, 27 years old, fairly young. Uh, they might not know the answers to all these questions, but you can ask them to put you in touch with somebody who would know the answers to those questions. And so what my husband and I did was we had to then schedule like a second phone call or a second Zoom call with someone from the school so that we could ask some of these more detailed questions. So when you're looking at diversity and how because um, remember, our operating assumption is that um, the principles of the critical social theories are already present at the school at some level. That's our operational assumption until we have clear evidence uh, that of, of the contrary. But when we're looking at diversity, it can look a lot of different ways. Like, here's, here's how I do it is I just use Google or I use the, the search engine on the school website and I type in the word diversity and I see what pops up. So here's one for Regent. Um, and as you can see here, it's they got some articles, diversity as a competitive strategy in the workplace. That could be interesting. Um, absence of diversity at the leadership level, generational diversity, a biblical perspective on universe, unity and diversity. These are, these are fairly benign hits that we're getting on the Regent website. Um, if you dig a little deeper, they have some student statistics on their, like, their, the ethnicity of their students and faculty and all of that. That's, that could be sort of interesting. Um, if we go to the DBU slide, you see similar things. This is, these are the hits that I got when I typed in diversity, there really wasn't much, uh, you know, there was, didn't seem to be an office. Uh, they had a, it looked like they had a lecture on racial reconciliation at some point in the past. So here's your pro tip. The pro tip is that if there is no established office of diversity, like they don't have a full-time diversity officer or, or an office staffed with four or five people, 
That usually means that the, the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion ideology isn't quite as embedded in the entire school yet. You'll still need to look at individual profs and departments, possibly depending on your kid's major. You'll especially want to look at it on the residence life issue, which we're going to cover in a moment. But um, if there's no formal office of diversity, then on the spectrum of issues, you know, that school might only be like at a two or a three level. Whereas if they have an, an office, a whole office of diversity staffed with, let's say, five full-time people, you know, that's going to be a, an indicator to you that this school is fairly financially and structurally invested in these ideas. And so, you know, it's, it's gonna come on pretty strong. Let's look at a couple other examples. Again, we're gonna look at a couple of local examples to us. Um, so these were the hits that I got for diversity on a Azusa Pacific site. And you could see that there was a lot of of hits there, diversity council, diversity resources, courses, um, advancing DEI. Um, so uh, they have a unity in, in diversity statement. So, you know, there, there was some meaningful hits there. Biola, likewise, um, they have a whole division of diversity and inclusion. They have a strategic plan on diversity. Um, and they have a glossary about diversity. So just on the surface, just by looking at these, these search terms, you know, these schools look a little bit more heavily invested in the whole DEI structure um, than uh, Regent or Dallas Baptist. And again, we have to think of this as a spectrum issue, okay? When we drilled a little, when I drilled a little farther on um, the Azusa Pacific website, I noticed that they even had a page called Bias Incident Reporting, and they have a whole team of of staff and faculty that are part of the Bias Incident team, and so a student or um, a, a, a staff person can report a bias incident, and there's a whole procedure, which I think is wonderful. They're so transparent about it. They tell you exactly what it is and what's going to happen. So, you know, I, I welcome this clarity. I, I appreciate it when schools are up front and they don't hide this stuff. I appreciate APU's transparency about it. And so you can see here some of the things that would qualify as a bias incident. Racial slurs, they don't define what that is. Derogatory comments, they don't define what that is offensive terminology, they don't define what that is. Cultural appropriations includes costumes. So, you know, um, they at least give an example there, that's helpful. But also notice microaggressions and they, they thankfully uh, um, included a, a definition there, subtle nonverbal layered insults, assaults based on race, gender, class, sexuality, language, immigration status, phenotype, accent, or surname often carried out automatically or unconsciously. So if you want to report a bias incident, you, you can do that. And um, there, there's a whole process that you have to go through for that. So this, these are some ways that you can kind of look into this, this piece on you know, how deep is the diversity on the, the spectrum of these things. I'm just gonna breeze through a few more of these slides. Uh, one of the colleges that my husband and I called uh, was Hillsdale. And I had always heard that Hillsdale was a Christian college and it's kind of not quite a Christian college, but it is interesting um, how they describe themselves. It's a co-educational, in other words, co-ed co men and women college of liberal arts. Um, it was open since the beginning, uh, regardless of race or religion. I appreciate the fact that they at least have a brief statement about social justice and multicultural diversity, um, that they see that as, uh, you know, the certain versions of that can be dehumanizing. 
and um, result in divisive power struggles. So this is what I could find on the Hillsdale website. And when we called Hillsdale, I went into the call thinking this is a Christian college, but it's actually, I would call like a liberal arts college. It's like what colleges were 150 years ago. Uh, they have people from every religion that go there. It's just that Hillsdale is teaching from kind of a framework of Judeo-Christianity. And so, but this is why reading these statements is important because sometimes we might have a public perception of a college and then we just go read what's available publicly and we're like, oh, this isn't exactly what I, what I thought it was. When you're looking for a statement from a school, I'm gonna give you an example of a statement to go read that I think is a great example. I would love it if Christian colleges, more Christian colleges would think about um, having clear statements um, about racism and social justice. This one is from Southern Evangelical Seminary. And you can go find that, just go to ses.edu backslash racism and you can read their whole document and they break it all the way down on the critical social theories. What's their position on that? Black Lives Matter. What's their position on that? Justice issues. What's their position on that? It is outstanding. It's clear. It's specific. Um, if your church is looking to adopt a position statement on some of these issues, I would strongly commend to you go read the statement by the Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu backslash racism, and read their statement and use that as some inspiration uh, for your ministry, church, or school, because I love how specific and clear it is. Um, one more example of a, a statement that's publicly available is Biola's Institutional Diversity Plan. And this is a almost like a little microsite. It has several pages on the Biola website. It's not the full diversity plan though. It's a summary of the diversity plan. So they don't explain policies that will be implemented. They don't explain how it will impact hiring. But what you can perceive from the statement itself is the depth to which Biola is committed to these principles. And again, I welcome this. I welcome a level of being upfront and, and clarity about things. Now, there's a lot of things in this statement itself that I think are sort of vague and general. Um, I have a ton of questions as a result of reading it several times, but um, at least it gives you a snapshot into a school. So you these are some things you can look for as you are trying to probe where a school stands on the issue of diversity. Okay, so questions to ask when it comes to diversity. Is there someone I can talk to who heads up the school's diversity efforts? Do you have a full-time diversity officer? If you wanna go that deep, you can, you can ask that question. These are just ideas. Does the university have a multi-year strategic plan for implementing diversity? How can I read that? And again, they're probably not gonna give you the detailed one. They're gonna give you some summary version. Is the school integrating diversity principles across the curriculum? This is a vital question. And you will have to have a very informed person who will know how to answer this question. This is probably not going to be the admissions counselor. But this is a way to try to investigate and see, again, where the school is on that spectrum. How many full-time people are there on staff to help the university meet its diversity goals. That, the answer to that question will tell you how monetarily and structurally invested the school is into these issues. Okay, so let's go on to number three. Number three, this is the third way that to help you vet a potential Christian college. Watch the chapels and special events. Um, if the chapels aren't publicly available, call the school and ask. Um, they'll probably give you access, especially if you're looking at the school. Um, some schools have them public. Biola has all of its chapels public. Some do not. Uh, 
when I talked to um, Grove City College, they gave me a secret link to go look at the chapels. So you, you, you might have to ask. But once you have access, a really quick thing you can do is just search for, well, how much time and attention do they spend on race and justice issues? Is it once a year? Is it 14 times a year? You know, what, how often are they engaging students in these conversations? And then what is the perspective that is presented? So you can just go right on their channel if they have it publicly available and just do some quick search terms on terms like justice or racial reconciliation or race or LGBT. Um, and you can, it also helps I found to look at what events did they do in the summer or fall of 2020? What conversations did they lead the students through in the chapels, in special events, in panel discussions, movie nights, whatever that was? Um, what did they do in the fall of 2020 to help disciple the students to help them process the events of the last summer? That will give you a big indicator as to where they are. So you don't have to watch like a gajillion chapels. You can kind of narrow the focus to, oh, this is how the school is going to disciple my kids on this issue. So, for example, um, when I went on the Biola uh, YouTube channel, just did a quick search, and you can see my search term there, racial reconciliation. There were over 50 chapels on race since the, the, the channel was started. 50 is a conservative number. I stopped counting. <laughs> there were actually more than that, but um, I just got sick of counting them. So I just said, okay, I'm going to put 50 plus. But so that tells me that Biola, again, that's consistent with the picture that I got when I looked up the word diversity on their website they're pretty invested. They're, this is a very important topic to them. And that plays out in, in the, the amount of people that they bring in for chapel messages. Uh, this this uh, next one was from Dallas Baptist. Um, after um, the summer of 2020, they brought in a panel. Uh, um, or, or no, this is from March 2019, I'm sorry. So they did a little panel discussion on racial reconciliation. This was way back in 2019. But they don't have a ton of content on race issues. Um, they did also invite Justin Gibney to come um, in the fall of 2020. This is the one I was thinking of. And he is the founder of the AND campaign. And he takes a little bit different perspective than we do at the Center for Biblical Unity. Uh, I appreciate the fact that Mr. Gibney is in the justice conversation. Um, I, you know, I, I take some difference with him on some of how he works it out and the practicalities of it. But, you know, DBU, uh, and I, if I remember right, when I asked the DBU rep about it, Mr. Gibney is an alumni of Dallas Baptist. And so that's why they had him come back to, to do this important conversation on justice. Um, but there wasn't a ton of content on the DBU website about race issues. Um, so that kind of gives me an impression of, okay, they don't have a diversity office. They don't have a ton of content on race issues. Maybe the level of penetration there is more by a particular department or faculty, you know, so it, it doesn't seem to be at the, the wide structural level. So do you, hopefully you're seeing how, you know, it, it, it starts to get, give you a picture for the school. Um, when I got access to the Grove City chapels, um, I asked the admissions counselor for that. You know, I immediately saw, okay, they had Jamar Tisby come uh, for a chapel. And then I kind of poked around. I watched that one. And then I watched the ones forward and back around that time. And they had a number of, like, they had a panel discussion with some students. They had a couple other faculty or uh, staff members who gave race-related messages. Um, so, you know, I just kind of looked at it and then looked at the wider spectrum of topics and most of them were fairly bible focused but in this one month they had a you know some some concentration on 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 the issue so 
um, that that was helpful to, to notice and to see. So questions to ask uh, if you're gonna look at a school is how may I watch old chapel messages? How can I get access to them if they're not publicly available? Um, you could ask a question like, how did the school respond in the wake of the social unrest of 2020? Uh, were any special events put together to help the students process the issue from a Christian point of view? This will help you know what kinds of steps of discipleship the school did for the students. All right, we're up to number four. The fourth thing that you can do to vet a Christian college is to follow key voices on social media. Um, you can follow the school, the official school uh, accounts, uh, the departments, but I also recommend that you look at clubs, affinity groups, and the school newspaper, the student newspaper. What you want to do is start to get a feeling for campus life. Chapels will give you some insight into how they will disciple your child. But this step starts to get you more into the student realm of how they're thinking. Following the student newspaper can be interesting. Uh, you could get some interesting data there. Following the student clubs, usually the student club Instagram accounts are run by students. And so you, you can start to get a really good feel for the kinds of students that go to this school and following their clubs and affinity groups. Affinity groups, if they even have affinity groups, that's kind of an in indication that they're buying into the critical social theories, at least on some level. Uh, affinity groups tend to be racial fellowship groups. That's the Christian version. Um, profs, personal accounts. If you know that your student wants to be a particular major and that, that department chair or profs in that department are on Twitter or anything and they have public accounts, I'm not talking about doxing people, but if they have public accounts, go follow them. Um, if, if your student has a favorite professor when they're at a college, follow them and, and see what they're about. Um, now, <laughs> do this with caution, but many schools have what are called tea sites, T-E-A, tea sites, where you spill the tea. They're gossip sites. And these are usually run by anonymous students. If you have the stomach for it, following these tea accounts will give you another window into the kinds of student, the kinds of conversations that students are ha having on that campus. And when I started following some T accounts at Biola, it was a little disturbing for me, like how much Biola students curse and use the F word. I was not completely prepared for that, nor was I completely prepared for their explicit sexual reports from the dorms. But again, these are these are student-run accounts, so you never know. They're anonymous accounts. Maybe some of it is false information. Maybe some of it is not credible. I'm sure the schools don't like it very much, but you will get a window, not the window, but it does offer a window into how some of the students on campus think. So that um, is another way to kind of see that what kinds of students are going into the school. Um, another thing that I'm starting to notice is uh, staff and faculty listing their pronouns uh, in their Twitter bios. Also notice what are they retweeting? Um, there was one professor uh, or staff member at a big Christian university and it said right in his Instagram bio that he was a progressive Christian. He was identifying himself as a progressive Christian. And I'm like, I appreciate the clarity. Um, so, you know, look, and, and if there's a person that you know is going to be influential as a, in, as a mentor in your kid's life, um, that's a good, a good step to take. So when you're following public accounts, here's a couple of examples uh, from public accounts. This was from the official Point Loma Nazarene University Facebook account from June 2020. 
Um, they were in the wake of the social unrest. They were making some recommendations. They, two of the books that they recommended were um, White Fragility and How to Be Anti-Racist. I thought that was interesting. Um, they encouraged students to donate money to Black Lives Matter. Uh, I thought that was interesting. And again, this was not a student account. This was the official Point Loma Facebook account. So that means that it was posted by paid staff and probably went through some kind of process of approval. Now, these next uh, shots that I'm going to show you are were, were publicly posted on various accounts uh, student accounts, but they were publicly posted. And um, just to give you a window into um, what is happening on campus and why following these accounts is valuable. So we're going to look at the Women's Month display in a student dorm at Biola. And this was, these pictures were taken in March of 2021. So this is a display in a dormitory. So it, it was approved by the RD, uh, the resident director. So he's the paid staff person. And they were featuring a lot of women, like female athletes, black athletes. They had Amelia Earhart, uh, the, the women from Hidden Figures. I mean, some of these were, were great, but two of the pictures really jumped out at Monique and I, and one of them was Laverne Cox, who is the first transgender person to be nominated for a primetime Emmy, and that was the caption that was under the picture. The other picture that caught our attention was Patricia Velasquez, and the caption under the picture was first Latina lesbian supermodel. And again, this was on display for a whole month in a student dorm at Biola. And after Monique and I highlighted it in a blog post, it was removed within a few hours after the blog post came out. But there was much more to this. And you can go on the CFBU website and, and read more of those receipts of where this led and that there was a QR code and where that led and all of that. But um, this to me as like, okay, when I see this, it makes me think, what is student life like? And, and this is the difficulty with the, the Christian universities is that most of the time, the parents don't really have a lot of information about how the school is discipling their kid in the day to day. And a lot of those interactions come in the dormitories and in the student life if they're living on campus. And so this is what I found in my own journey is that the external appearance of the statement of faith and, and looking at the chapels and looking at the, the diversity plan, all of these things have been through like multiple layers of editors and approval and all of this kind of stuff. But when you get in the dorms and you see what's happening on student social media accounts, this is where you start to get a snapshot into how the school is discipling these students. And that is what I think is actually more important than the external appearance. It's what's happening in those day-to-day -day conversations. And this display caused me to have a question mark in my mind especially because it was approved by a resident director, a staff person. And I'm thinking, wow, that's interesting. I, I have questions about that as, as a parent. And so, you know, and these are the things that most parents never see. It's behind the scenes. I mean, how often do we visit our kid's dorm and see what's hanging up on a display? It's just a question. It's just a question mark. It's like, wow, this is interesting. This next thing I'm going to show you was an art display that was at Biola a few months ago. It was sponsored by the, um, the Asian American Pacific Islander student group. 
Um, the pictures were posted on Biola, the Biola Art Department Instagram account. So this was an official Biola entity um, where the pictures were displayed. And you can see the, the caption there is this powerful guest artist work that was exhibited at the AAPI night market. And so this was a student event. Um, students might have invited this artist to come. He, he um, appears to have been influenced by liberation theology. I went on his Instagram account and I think it would be fair to say that he's, he's an artist who has been influenced by the ideas of liberation theology. You can see on the left-hand side of the screen there, he has an homage to Jesus on the cross um, mixed with George Floyd being on the cross and, and, you know, taken in context, I think it would be a fair assessment to say that these are, this artist is, is influenced by liberation theology, which is fine. I I'm, I'm here for it. Like, I think that I'm for free speech. I, I think people should be entitled to their own point of view. I have no problem with any of that. The question that comes in my mind is that why is this at Biola? Like liberation theology is not within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. It's not part of the historic Christian tradition. So why would this art display be at a Biola event and paid for by Biola money? I, I mean, this is, this is my question. I mean, let's say worth, a, a best case scenario was paid for by some outside donors money. Okay. But it's still being brought to Biola. And if their explanation for that is, well, we're going to have a spectrum of views. Okay. But is this on the spectrum of Christianity? Is that what they're wanting to tell students? I'm not sure that your average 19 year old would know enough about liberation theology to know that that's what this is. And this is where my real concern comes in and where I'm asking the question is how is the school discipling the students? Is it sending them a consistent message of engaging with social justice and secular forms of social justice? Or is it presenting a distinctly Christian vision for helping the poor? And that is, for me, a big question. And, and this is the kind of question I want to teach you to ask. So, all right, let's move on to the fifth way you can vet your child's um, Christian college is to research your child's future professors. I'm not talking about doxing anyone. I'm just talking about looking at what's publicly available. Um, if your child is going into the field of psychology, sociology, social work, education, like, like they want to be a teacher, legal studies, justice studies, feminist studies, literature, or English, if they're going into any of those fields, you should assume as the parent that they will be taught those disciplines through the lens of the critical social theories until you have evidence to the contrary. Just like evolutionary biology is the lens through which students are generally taught biology. The critical social theories is the lens through which students in going into psychology, social work, sociology, English literature, and all of these other disciplines, that's the lens that they're taught through. So you should assume that that is the operational framework for those professors until you have evidence to the contrary. So how do you do this? Read the faculty page. If there isn't public faculty pages, ask the school. Again, it might take a couple of conversations until you get with the right person, but see if you can read the curriculum vitae of the professors in the department. Um, but looking at their dissertation will tell you one level, but looking at all of their subsequent papers is also important. There was a there was a particular situation that I was researching on a professor at a Christian university who um, was engaging in some what I felt like were 
teaching students some fairly strange gender theory through the Bible. Okay. Um, and so I went and I read his, his dissertation. And then I went through his curricular vitae to see his subsequent papers. He had, he had published like 30 papers all on gender theory. I'm like, okay, he's committed. So now this makes sense why he's leading students in a theology class in all of these conversations on gender and, you know, referring to using um, weird pronouns, we'll put it that way, uh, for God. Uh, so I think that you, you, you have to have both, you know, you have to ha have your data. If you just look at the title of, of the dissertation, that might be enough to tell you a lot. Uh, looking at the curriculum vitae, seeing what kinds of papers they've had published. Now, one thing that came up in the discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion last fall in that podcast, if you want to go look for that on all the things, when I interviewed an associate dean, this is a very important point because people are going to ask the next natural question is how do we get here at, in Christian higher ed? Well, the answer to that is that back in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was a strong push to encourage promising young people coming through higher, higher education to go get degrees at secular institutions and then come back to their Christian institution where they graduated from and teach. And so you have this whole crop of people that are like my age who went and got, did their doctoral studies in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then they came back to Christian higher ed after getting a degree in a secular institution where things were taught through the lens of the critical social theories. And now they have brought that back into the Christian higher ed. That plays a major role in how we got here. So when you look at that curriculum, Vita, you're going to see the receipts for that person, um, those publication receipts of how they made it through their program, how they got promoted, possibly how they got tenure. So here's some questions for you to ask. Who are the influential profs on campus? Which prof would you say is the most well-known for the integration work they've done between their academic field and the Christian faith? This is a very important question because you want to identify the quality of work. So let's say there's a big name on campus of our school has so-and-so, big name professor. Great. What was their big project you know, that they did on integration between Christianity and their academic discipline. That would tell me how closely, you know, they, they've really thought through that integration and, and what that looks like um, and how robust that framework is. How can I find out about my kids' profs, their potential profs? Are their CVs posted on their faculty page? Okay, so those are some questions that you can inquire about. So again, the question is not, what is the school saying in public about their biblical fidelity? That's not the question. The question is not, what have they put in the alumni newsletter, the donor communications, official school podcast, statements from the president. I almost don't even look at those things. When people send me those things, I glance at them, but I don't really put a lot of weight on them because in my mind, that's that's just for donors. It's, it's, it's probably not the truth. This is how, how much skepticism I, I am in about this. The real question is, is how is the school discipling the students? What are the policies, the shared language and values? What's happening in the residence life? What's happening in the chapels? What kind of clubs do they have? Do they have affinity groups? Who are the faculty? What kind of faculty are they hiring? This is how the school is discipling the students. And this is far more important than all of the public communications. 
you almost have to function as if the public communications aren't happening because this is where you want to get to this information here of how the school is discipling the students. So going back to my challenges in, in my research, um, one of the things I talked about or I had on the slide there was donor protection um, and the denials and explanations. There was, whenever I would try to bring forward data of like, well, what about this? This seems to be a problem. This seems to be out of step with the Christian faith. I was constantly told, well, that's just rogue staff, outliers, miscommunication, or we're making room for a variety of views. Those are generally the responses that I would get. And my feeling about that became, this is my feeling, this is an opinion, but it became one of, this feels like donor protection. This feels like they're trying to protect the, keeping the money flowing. I could be wrong. That is a feeling. It is a perception. It is not necessarily a fact. So what makes the critical social theories especially toxic on Christian campuses? Because this is what a lot of people are asking me right now is they'll say, well, shouldn't I just send my kid to a secular school then? I can't answer that for you. That's a personal decision for you. I'm just giving you some things to think about. And you might be totally comfortable with all of this. If you adhere to the critical social theories, you can reverse engineer this entire live stream and vet a school that you want to send your kid to because that's what you believe. And, and you know, great. Um, that's totally available to you. But I can't answer whether or not you know, secular school, Christian school is better. But here's why I have concerns about Christian higher ed, is that the way that the students are being discipled is to believe that the lens of the critical social theories is how we ought to understand and interpret the Bible and live out our faith. That is concerning to me. And so if the student is getting consistent messaging uh, that's based on the critical social theories, th things about, you know, white privilege or um, oppressed oppressor categories and, and, you know, all the things that we talk about in other streams. So I'm not going to go into that. But if that's the lens that students are being discipled into believing this is how you interpret the Bible, this is how you live out the Christian life. That, that's not good. That, that could be very damaging to them. Uh, and I've talked to a number of students that, that they have a very distorted view of the faith. This is what I call the fun house mirror view of the faith. They have a, a, a version of our faith that kind of reflects what it's really about, but it's, it's very distorted. And this is a concern for me because I've talked to enough parents that once their kids get through these Christian colleges and they, they come out the other end of the sausage machine, if you will, their kids are, are, some of them are emotionally damaged um, from all of the constant messaging of um, that they, they, they feel ashamed now of being white. They don't know what to do with that. Or they are in the process of really reinterpreting their whole faith through the lens of social justice. Some, in extreme cases, cancel their parents until their, their parents um, repent of their whiteness and their complicity in, in participating with white, white structures. So somewhere on that spectrum is not unusual. In the, in the cases that I have interviewed, that it does seem to be the pattern. And so I think that that is the extra caution that I would have at this point about sending your kids to a Christian college is that 
social justice and the critical social theories gets wedded to their faith in a pretty um, deep way. And so just know that going into it. Okay, um, I am going to put a bookmark there. There's much more that I could say on these matters, but um, I'm going to leave it there for now. And I want to say thank you for watching. Uh, I hope you find this video helpful. I hope you'll share it. My hope in all of this is really to help equip parents to, to be able to do this for yourself, um, to, to research the schools that you care about, and to think about how you will fight. Um, not everybody's called to fight the same way. Not all schools are in equal jeopardy. Um, some are rolling some of these measures back. Some are doubling down. But you will have to investigate those schools um, as you go and then to keep an eye on them. That was part of the mistake that I made is I just made an assumption with, with my daughter that, that the school we were sending her to was the same grade school that my husband and I went to. And I just didn't even look into it. I just read the statement of faith and went from there. So I hope that this is helpful that you can get equipped and have some strategies in place of how you can inform yourself. And I look forward to your comments. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.